Welcome to Season 3 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. This season will feature more peeking behind the scenes, pushing back at assumptions, and listening to the voices of the past. We'll have fun and fascinating guests and welcome your involvement in what we chat about. It's all part of Shaking Up History. We start with a focus on our favorite birthday girl, Queen Elizabeth I. All month, we'll consider this multifaceted woman who went from being baby heir to discarded daughter and from being suspected sister to Queen of England. Enjoy our journey through Elizabeth's England. Welcome, everyone, to Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I am thrilled and over the moon to have Dr. Elizabeth Norton here with us to talk about, it's Elizabeth about Elizabeth, to talk about the young Elizabeth Tudor and who she was before she became that iconic queen and some of the ways that she did become that iconic queen. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me on. I've been really looking forward to it. It's a real pleasure. Oh, well, thank you. So I want to jump in. I'm, I know you can't see this, but I'm sitting here with the book. I love this book, The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor. And I just kind of wanted to start when you were thinking of writing a book about, you know, one of the most famous queens and, you know, such an iconic figure. How did you decide to write about that part of her life? The oh. early years. Yeah. So, I mean, I always feel that her early years get a little bit glossed over. I mean, it's the subject matter of the temptation of Elizabeth Tudor will appear in every biography of Elizabeth I, but it tends to be a chapter at most. And no one really has sort of forensically looked at it. And so when I was thinking about writing something about Elizabeth, I really wanted to go back to the early period, particularly the period in Edward VI's reign, which actually tends to be ignored we look at when we're talking about Elizabeth before she becomes queen we talk about her early childhood with her mother Anne and then we think about the reign of her half-sister Mary where she's really really important she's heir to the throne but actually the six years of her brother's reign tend to be a bit of a black hole when we're talking about Elizabeth who's sort of you know we know she's there and yet she's somehow sort of not there if you like Right. That is interesting because there's so much excitement during Henry's reign and then so much excitement during Mary's. It it does get skipped. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people sort of gloss over that part? I think partly she's not that important in Edward's reign. And we're we're of course used to looking at, you know, we know Elizabeth becomes this great queen. I mean, potentially England's greatest monarch. Um, you know, I mean, I think King Athelstan won a recent poll, but I, that's a bit of an aberration, I would say. Um, <laughs> so we are used to knowing Gloriana, you know, the great virgin queen. And so from our point of view, she's always on that path. But actually, it's not really until sort of the later 1550s that she's actually even likely to become queen. In Edward's reign, you know, Edward is healthy by all accounts, he's really likely to grow up, get married, have his own family. If something happens to him, there's still Mary, and Mary's in her early 30s at this point, so she could easily marry and have her own children. So actually, the Elizabeth that we meet in Edward's reign is not an Elizabeth who is likely to become a monarch. Um, she is 
a wealthy woman. She's a noble woman, obviously close to the throne, but she is quite far from the throne in terms of actually wearing a crown. I mean, I think Elizabeth in 1547 cannot have thought that her prospects of becoming queen were actually anything more than, you know, really speculative. So I think that's why we don't think about this Edwardian Elizabeth, if you like, in that she's just not that important. Oh, that's such a great comment. I, I've never really thought about it that way, but she's not. She's really quite distant from the throne and unlikely to get there. Yeah. I mean, when we think back when Henry VII died, he leaves a son and two daughters and his younger daughter, Mary's miles away from the throne, you know, and so she's effectively the Elizabeth of the previous reign, if you like. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't think anyone will have plausibly thought Elizabeth would wear the crown in 1547. Okay. That's okay. So as we look at the events that happened during Edward's reign, it's helpful to remember that these are happening to a young woman not expected to become queen. And I think that's a helpful way to look at it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I wonder what you think about, because in Edward's reign, what is her relationship like Edward like? And we're going to talk about some of the things that happened to her, but what's her relationship with Edward like? <laughs> So she has a really close relationship with Edward. Um, they've been raised together in their early years. And when he's born, he joins Elizabeth in the royal nursery and he stays there until he's six. Um, so they have a really close relationship. They're known to be close enough that actually when Henry VIII dies, um, the future protector Somerset actually fetches Edward and brings him to Elizabeth so he can tell the two children together so they can comfort each other about the death of their father. So she's really close to Edward. There's only four years between them. They're half siblings, but they've been raised effectively as siblings and um, full siblings. Um, unlike Mary, who is much, much older than both of them and is, is a more distant figure. For Edward, she's much more of a mother. Um, I mean, she's his godmother, apart from anything else. But Edward and Elizabeth have this bond and they share their Protestant religious beliefs because they've had similar tutors. And um, in the latter years of Henry VIII's reign, whether he liked it or not, um, the universities where, of course, they're drawing the royal tutors from are absolutely full of Protestants. Right. So Edward and Elizabeth are raised as Protestants. So they also share this bond of religion. And throughout the reign, we can see there's a fondness. And there's obviously a distance because Edward is the king right. and Elizabeth is this illegitimate princess. So she's she's not quite a member of the royal family. She's almost there, but not quite. Um, mm -hmm. so there is this distance, but um, on a personal level, they get on really well and they're quite similar people. They're interested in their studies. They're interested mm -hmm. in their religion. Mm -hmm. um, and they've got this shared bond of childhood. Okay, that's great. It always makes me think of that one portrait that's at Hampton Court where Henry sort of superimposed Jane Seymour into the family portrait. But those pillars that separate Mary and Elizabeth in the portrait seem to me to really symbolize, yes, they're in the family, but they're both not really in the family. Yeah, it's cold. It's cold. They're they're outside the mm -hmm. core group. They are, they're mm -hmm. there, but they're not there. And I mean, it's, it's, when you look at it like that, it's actually a really horrible portrait. Because <laughs> it's, Henry, it's Henry saying, you know, I'll bring my daughters back into the family, but they're not quite in the family. You know, it, the, the pillars are the symbol of their illegitimacy as far as Henry is concerned. Mm -hmm. Like, 
Yeah. And, and that makes life very difficult for both Mary and Elizabeth as things go on. Um, all right. So uh, I know there's a lot of talk about a particular uh, program. We're not going to really delve into that because what I want to focus on today is the real story of Elizabeth, not maybe a made-for-TV version, but some of the things that happen to her during Edward's reign feel like almost a made-for-TV movie. They're just so uh, not unbelievable, but shocking in many ways. And so, of course, I'm talking about when Elizabeth goes to live with her stepmother. She has become close to Catherine Parr. She goes to live with Catherine Parr, who then secretly, Catherine secretly marries Thomas Seymour. So can you just sort of set that up for us, that new dynamic for Elizabeth? After her father dies, her brother is now king because there is no queen consort. There's really no place for her at court. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Elizabeth is too young to live by herself. She's only 13 years old. Um She's an orphan because, of course, when Henry dies, she loses, but she's lost both her parents. Um, so the obvious person for her to go and live with is Catherine Parr. It's either Catherine or Mary. And Mary does offer her a home um, because actually the sisters at this point are quite close. Um, but Catherine is the obvious choice. Catherine is, if you like, almost a professional stepmother. She's very, very experienced at raising um, the children of her husband. And mm -hmm. I'm very good at it. Um, she clearly builds up a strong relationship, particularly to Elizabeth and to Edward um, during her marriage to Henry. And so she's the obvious choice to go and to take on Elizabeth. So Elizabeth moves in with Catherine at Chelsea Manor, um, which is quite a small manor house. They're all sort of squeezed in, um, which is to some extent relevant, actually, to what happens to Elizabeth, because I'm actually... Um, one key thing that sort of came out when I was doing my research is that because her because her bedroom is so small at Chelsea, she sleeps alone, um, which is really, really unusual um, for a princess at the period. There's no one in her bedroom with her. Oh, that is interesting. And so that's because it was such a small room. Yeah, um, that's that's the reason they give for it. Okay. Normally, you'd expect her governess, um, Catherine Ashley, um, Kate or Cat Ashley, mm -hmm. to share with her. But Kate is quite newly married. Um, and she's also quite possessive of Elizabeth. Um, mm. We know, again, from the sources, I mean, it's such a rich period for source material, actually. Um, but if we know from the sources that Kate is possessive of Elizabeth, she doesn't like anyone else sort of sharing with Elizabeth when she's not there. So, I mean, in some respects, I think the small room is a bit of a pretext. And actually, Kate wants to sleep with her own husband, but she doesn't want anyone else in there with Elizabeth. Okay. Um, but, it's, but it is a kind of, you know, it's actually, it's a symptom or a symbol of the fact that actually Catherine's household at Chelsea may not be as sort of conventional as you would sort of expect it to be. Okay, that's interesting, um, because we think of her often as fairly conventional, having been married to the king and, you know, just coming out of that. But she does make a couple of decisions, Catherine Parr does, that shows she's ready to have her own life, having been married to a couple of elderly men in succession. <laughs> so when does she marry Thomas Seymour? We don't know for sure, do we? No, we don't. Although it is later, he's later accused of marrying the Queen so quickly 
that if she'd fallen pregnant, it would have put the succession in jeopardy because they wouldn't have known who uh-huh. fathered the baby, either okay. him or Henry. So it's close. It must be close. I mean, that's one of the charges levelled against him. So you know, I think it, it's fairly it's fairly soon, or at least there's there's a suggestion that the government think it it happened within weeks after Henry's death. Okay, and so what does that create for this household now? Is Lady Jane Grey also there at this time? So she joins the household. She is Thomas's ward. Okay. Um, he basically pays for her. He buys her from her father, <laughs> um, and and you know to raise her. Normally, normally you get a wardship if someone is an orphan or their father has died. Um, right. The fact that she's she's got two living parents is, I mean, that must have caused comments at the time. Right. Because Thomas doesn't have a son because normally you you take on an heiress as a ward because you're hoping to marry her to your son. And um, actually, of course, Thomas is hoping to marry her to the king, to Edward the Sixth. But right. Okay. I mean, sort of, you know, a symptom of his sort of early plotting. So Jane isn't there immediately, but she comes not that much longer afterwards. But the main difference is Thomas joins the household because before we've got Catherine, who's the head of the household. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's quite a fun household to be in. There's music and there's dancing. It's also very scholarly, you know, and they, they have a lot of religious instruction. But when Thomas comes, it really changes the dynamic because Catherine may be a queen dowager, but as a wife in Tudor England, she is entirely subject to her husband. And we all know this, of course, you know, it's once if you're married as a woman, you have no legal personhood. So she can't own anything. Everything passes to Thomas. Um, wow. And we know that he takes advantage of this. He starts taking her money into his own hands and her officers have to pay him, for example. Um, and equally, he becomes head of the house. Um he becomes de facto Elizabeth's stepfather, um, as far as everyone's concerned. But he's also absolutely in charge. No one in that household can disobey Thomas um, because he's the head of the household. And that includes Catherine and that includes Elizabeth. OK, so even though it's an established household with her in charge, as soon as he comes in, that shifts. And now he is in charge. He is yeah. the new head of household. Absolutely. And um. And there are signs that, you know, the dyna- that is the dynamic. Um, for example, Elizabeth's servants later recall that he's an oppressor in the household. And okay. they, give, they give an account that basically, you know, once um, Catherine is alone in a room when a male groom comes in to um, tend to the fire and the door closes on them. So she's alone in a room with a male groom. And Thomas goes into an, an enormous rage when he discovers that this happened, a jealous rage. So... There are signs that he is very, very dominant in the household. And it's quite hushed up. Um, But he certainly is asserting himself as the head of the household. Okay. So we know the timing of this marriage is quite scandalous because she is expected to mourn the king for quite a while and she doesn't. Is there anything else about the marriage? Tell us what else about this marriage that just is, is raising some eyebrows. So, I mean, it's, it's Catherine's attempt at a love match. Um, mm-hmm. It's her fourth husband. He's the only husband she gets to choose. And she's tried to marry him before Henry VIII declared his interest all the way back in 1543, um, which, of course, means that Thomas had to step back. So as far as Catherine's concerned, it's absolutely a love match. It's less clear on Thomas's part. Um, she's a royal bride. She's a real catch. Um but he does have this earlier connection to Catherine and there are signs of affection between them. So I think, you know, she he, she may not have been his first choice necessarily as wife. And um, there are certainly rumours he's after both princesses. Right. Um, 
but actually I think there is affection there um it's a marriage that um is very very scandalous um as you say partly because it happened so soon after Henry VIII's death I mean Mary Princess Mary is really offended that Catherine doesn't mourn her father for the period that she should do and the protector um Edward Seymour Duke of Somerset, who's Thomas's brother, is incredibly offended by the match because he would never have given his permission. And his okay. wife, Anne Stanhope, is equally offended and actually tries to use it to claim precedence over Catherine. You know, there's an account of them pushing each other out of the way through doorways and things. <laughs> but it's also really political because Catherine wanted to be regent and she thought that she was going to be regent. Um, Henry VIII had made an earlier will where he seems to have named Catherine as regent in the event of his death and he changes it on his deathbed. And it may or may not be valid, but it seems to have fitted his wishes. Um, So she wants to be regent and Thomas wants to be regent or at least to share the regency. Mm. So the fact that these two team up, they sort of create instant opposition to the protector so it's really, really scandalous. And they're able to get the king involved to persuade him that it's his idea that they marry. Um, and Thomas spends the whole marriage plotting against his brother. Um, he is desperate to share the regency, or at least he wants to be governor of the king. So he wants to be in charge of looking after the king. So he gets the daily access. Um, he's not so bothered about the protectorship at that point, I mean, largely because actually the daily access to the king is really what you want. Okay. And he from what we see has been close to the king. I mean, these are the only two maternal relatives that Edward has, right? His mother's two brothers. Yeah. Apart from Henry Seymour, who's a Seymour brother that stays at home um, and doesn't get his head chopped off. (laughs) (laughs) Staying in Wiltshire is clearly the thing to do if you're a Seymour. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're they're Edward's closest male relatives. um, And that's why Thomas thinks that he should share um, you know, he's saying I'm, I'm related to the king in exactly the same way as you. Um, right. We should share this. Okay. So we have all this political stuff going on and we have this almost a, an alternate version of the Regency. We've got, you know, Thomas and Catherine over here and then Edward and Anne Stanhope. That's a great, you know, sort of foursome. But let's look at what happens with Elizabeth. And I know there's a lot of controversy and different views or whatever, but can you just sort of walk us through some of the things that we know happened with Elizabeth during this period of time? So this is still fairly early in Edward's reign, right? When we see these events. Okay. So Thomas may or may not have proposed marriage to Elizabeth before he marries Catherine Parr. Um, there's there's a surviving letter um, which is, may not be genuine. It only appears in a 17th century form where it's been translated to, into Italian um, by a slightly dubious um, source. So um, it's, there's a lot of debate over this letter. Um, I, it, it may be genuine, but I think that's as far as we can go. Um, so he may or may not have proposed marriage. But anyway, he comes into the household and he's Elizabeth's stepfather. So he's in charge. And she's, of course, sleeping alone. Um, And almost immediately, he starts acting in a very inappropriate way. Um, So he he comes into her bedroom early in the morning while she's still in bed and, um, you know, sort of basically says he's coming to wake her up and he tries to climb into the bed to tickle her as she sort of shrinks back into the covers. Um, And this is, I mean, obviously inappropriate. 
Um, on subsequent days, he appears bare-legged and in his slippers, according to um, one of Elizabeth's servants. So he's in a state of undress. Elizabeth is also, of course, undressed. She's in her nightgown. Um, so he keeps on coming. And at times, Elizabeth attempts to get up early. And on one occasion, when she then tries to run to her maidens in the next room, he actually um, slaps her familiarly on the buttocks, um, according again to the accounts of her servants. So he's he's very much taking liberties with Elizabeth. And these early morning, I mean, they're often referred to as romps, but, you know, I mean, it's, I don't think that's the right word, really. But these early morning encounters keep on happening. Um, interestingly, in Kate Ashley's, I mean, Kate Ashley starts to become aware and I mean, she notes that when Elizabeth is already up and fully dressed, Thomas re just sticks his head in the door and says, good morning. And then off he goes. It's only when she's not dressed that he's showing this interest. And he's saying okay. it's completely innocent. Um, I'm just getting my stepdaughter out of bed. How can anyone take anything wrong with that? And he's very, very charming. And often he'll go through and talk to her ladies in the next room and sort of downplays it. Catherine Parr sometimes joins in, um, which is interesting. So she also right. comes into the bed and does the tickling. Um, there's another incident. There's only this is a one-off, but um, pretty iconic, really. Um, right. At the gardens at Hanworth, which is another of Catherine's dower houses, um, Elizabeth is held by Catherine Parr while Thomas slashes her dress to pieces and presumably with his dagger. Um, and when Elizabeth goes back to Kate, Kate says, you know, why are you so trimmed? Um, you know, her dress has been trimmed off. And, you know, she explains what's happened and no one can really do anything about it. So he just keeps on coming. Catherine's involvement is really, really interesting. And actually, Kate Ashley herself says, you know, if, if you do it with the Queen, nobody mislikes it. It's, it's fine. But if you come by yourself, it's not fine, um, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So, so we have these two women, Catherine Parr and Kate or Kat Ashley, who sort of are in the role where they could have been more of a protector of Elizabeth, but are both sounds like sort of charmed by Thomas Seymour into maybe going along with it. Does that seem like what's happening? Um, neither woman protects Elizabeth as much as they could. Although it is quite difficult. So Kate Ashley, yeah. I mean, she's obviously, I mean, she's a servant. Um, she's right. Elizabeth's governess. She's a high-ranking servant. She's a gentlewoman, but she's far below Thomas. She actually does confront him at one stage. And he basically says, you know, I'm slandered. I'll take this to pr the protector. This, you know, this is awful. Um, I don't know how you can think that. And that's kind of as far as Kate can go with Thomas. The fact that okay. she actually approaches Thomas herself is very, very brave. And okay. actually, she does attempt to sit in with Elizabeth in the early mornings. And actually, it doesn't have any effect. Thomas just carries on. Um, okay. Catherine Parr is an interesting one because she does have more clout with Thomas. Um, you know, she is the Queen Dowager. She is his wife. Um, she seems to have tried to intervene direct indirectly. So she, at one stage, tells Kate Ashley off. She says, you know... Um, my husband Thomas has seen Elizabeth, looked through the gallery window and seen Elizabeth with her arms around a man's neck. Um, you need to take better watch over her. So Kate Ashley is horrified and goes to Elizabeth and says, you know, what is this about? And Elizabeth bursts into tears and says, you know, that didn't happen. That's not true. And actually Kate believes her because 
there isn't any other man in the household apart from Elizabeth's school teacher, who she seems to have considered was entirely unlikely for Elizabeth to throw her arms around his neck. Um, so there's no one else. Right. Kate concludes that it's Catherine, Catherine Parr, concocting a story because she's jealous to try and get Kate Ashley to take a better watch on Elizabeth to act as a chaperone. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, I tend to view Catherine Parr's involvement in the tickling and the holding Elizabeth as an attempt to chaperone Elizabeth. And I think I think I tried to give her the benefit of the doubt a little. I think, you know, actually she is married to Thomas. He is quite emotional. I would say he's quite emotionally abusive in their relationship in a lot of respects. Okay. Um, so I think actually there's it's difficult for her to stand out against him so I think actually by chaperoning Elizabeth herself it it's clear that he's not going to go any further so I think in that respect that's what Catherine is doing but undoubtedly she should have sent Elizabeth away um and she had the power to do it she could have sent her to stay with Mary she could have sent her to stay with friends but she doesn't do it until much much later okay so perhaps one of the reasons she's participating is in fact to be there as a chaperone and and knows that it won't go any further. Or I, I remember hearing you and I think Susanna Lipscomb talk about maybe the holding was trying to protect in some way with the dress cutting to limit. Yeah. Um, I mean, Thomas is not going to go further with Elizabeth when Catherine Parr is there. I mean, you know, she make, she's his wife and he's in charge of her, but there are limits to what right. a wife would be expected to put up with. And I think... You know, the fact that she's there is some measure of protection for Elizabeth. He's not going to go. For, I mean, what, what he's doing already is beyond the bounds of decency for the period. I mean, you know, it's right ridiculously inappropriate for this teenage princess. Um, but, you know, I think at least Catherine it can ensure that it's not going to go further while she's present. Okay. All right. Well, that's great. And that's a good way to think about her being part of it or her joining the tickling or whatever is that she can also be there just as a presence to stop him from going any further. Okay. So then the time does come, as you mentioned, that eventually it goes too far. Catherine Parr is pregnant. And as it's described, she comes upon them um, with her in Thomas's arms and sends her away. So can you you know, share, bring us up with that story, bring us up to speed with that. Yeah. So Catherine obviously falls pregnant um, around the start of 1548. And, you know, it's her first baby, as far as we know. Um, She is not very well throughout the pregnancy. She suffers from morning sickness. She seems generally less inclined to sort of tolerate um, Thomas to some extent. Um, Although she brings Elizabeth back because over Christmas, Elizabeth wasn't with Thomas and Catherine. They leave her behind when they come to London. So she, the fact she brings Elizabeth back is, I mean, a bit of a red flag, I would say. I mean, I, if I was Catherine, I would be keeping her further away from Thomas. Um, but so she becomes pregnant. And Thomas is, they're both confidently expecting that it will be a boy, um, of course, because all Tudor parents want a boy. <laughs> right. um, they course. all expect a boy. Right? <laughs> they do. They do. I mean, they call him, They call their child the little knave before he's born. He's clearly going to be a boy. Um, no question. So Thomas wants this boy to be born at his baronial seat, which is Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire. Um, so they make preparations to go to Sudley and by all accounts Elizabeth is supposed to go with them Jane Grey certainly goes with them however um, while Thomas is at court Catherine writes a letter to him and actually we have Elizabeth 
seems to have added her own words to the outside of this letter where she I mean she basically says um let him not touch me um which is really thou touch me not and then she crosses it through and says let him not touch me which is I think is really really interesting for mm-hmm. how she feels about Thomas she's put this dead put this on this letter to Thomas I and mean, it has no effect he comes back um to the household and Catherine comes upon them embracing and this is the moment where she can't gloss it over as you know just a stepfather being affectionate to a child and um, you know this is the point where Catherine really has to acknowledge that it's inappropriate right. um she falls out with them both according to Kate Ashley she also falls out with Kate um and she decides to send Elizabeth away so she sends her off to Sir Anthony Denny at Chesant in Hertfordshire interestingly for appearances sake Thomas Seymour goes part of the way with Elizabeth which again I mean just looks looks crazy from our point of view but equally it's really really dangerous if what has happened with Thomas and Elizabeth gets out I mean it looks very treasonous because of course she is second in line to the throne I mean I know I said earlier you know she's got no chance for the throne but she still is second in line right um so I think really they try and hush it up and so for appearances sake it's just decided Elizabeth's not going to Sudley she's just going to go to Chesant and um it's all fine Obviously, it's not fine. But Catherine and Elizabeth are able to reconcile that summer over letter, which is, I think, a, a really a positive for Elizabeth's future life, actually, because, of course, she doesn't see Catherine Parr again after right. this final meeting, an angry meeting. Right. And I, I'm fascinated by that letter that Elizabeth sends where she mentions, it, it sounds like, Elizabeth is admitting she had a little bit of an attitude at the time because she sort of admits she wasn't really listening at the time or didn't give heed and then said later that she recognizes the importance of Catherine's warning and and Catherine tells her that she will let her know about, quote, evils that she might hear of her. So Catherine seems to be giving Elizabeth some cautionary words and Elizabeth in this response seems to say, okay, I do appreciate it. Sort of an apology for not maybe paying attention or maybe having a little bit of an attitude. What do you think? I just think that's a fascinating letter for a teenager to have written. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I'm, I, it's clearly a heated final meeting between them. Um, Catherine is angry and upset. Elizabeth seems to have been defensive. Um, and obviously we're basing it on Kate Ashley's own sort of account of what's happened and then also this letter. But it's clear that Catherine, you know, really gives her a talking to and says, you know, you cannot behave like this. And I think to some extent, Catherine possibly steps away, you know, and kind of in some respects divorces it from the fact that it's her husband they're talking about and sort of in general says to Elizabeth you've got to be above suspicion um it's a really important lesson I don't think Elizabeth was ready to hear it during the fallout from um, the embrace with Thomas but you as you say she sort of she goes back and she reflects on it and you know it heeds Catherine's advice and heeds Catherine's advice throughout the rest of her life I think I mean I think it's it's a lesson that she remembers and acts upon in future um because I think she's aware that maths have gone too far and I think I mean again it's so it's you know I I don't like to call it a relationship between Thomas and Elizabeth because actually it's really predatory um Mm -hmm. I mean today it would be considered to be grooming undoubtedly so but in the 16th century Elizabeth would certainly be considered to be at fault to a very great extent for what has happened between her and Thomas. Um, She's the daughter of a convicted adulteress. 
Yes. Um, which means that she is effectively tarred by association with Anne Boleyn anyway. And we all know Anne Boleyn's innocent. I mean, I always like to mm-hmm. get that out. I mean, she totally is. But to Tudors, you know, um, my right. And, you know, actually, if the mother is an adulteress, it's quite likely that you need to watch the daughter's character a bit. You know, it's a bit right. like the idea that they think that the character of a wet nurse gets passed on through the milk. You know, Right, right. You inherit these things just by being in someone's child or, yeah. or someone's, yeah. So Elizabeth is always going to be a little bit suspect because Mm -hmm. of Anne Boleyn. Mm -hmm. Um, But the woman just gets blamed for sexual impropriety in the Tudor period. I mean, it's a period where you have to marry a rapist. Um, You know, it's it's, Elizabeth is always going to be blamed. And it doesn't matter that she's 13 and then she's 14 years old. Um, 14 is marriageable Mm -hmm. in the period. Um, She's certainly, you know, she'll come off worse if this comes out. Right, right. And that lesson so early on um, does stick with her. And we'll we'll look at that. But that's so important. And, you know, you just in that letter, I just, I just feel like she's able to step back from her experience or her emotions about it and really learn something that letter seems to me really mature um, for looking at this experience. So Elizabeth then is caught up as Thomas Seymour's desire to be a, a greater part of Edward's regime and in and, and more power. Elizabeth gets caught up in some of that as well. And I do wonder, I, I, she's under interrogation and her servants are under interrogation. That's how we know all this, right? But just for a moment, in addition to talking about that, can I just ask about Edward? Because they have been close. And this is during his reign. Does Edward seem at all bothered by how Elizabeth is pulled into this intrigue between the two Seymour brothers? Or does he stand up for, do we have any sense of Edward, you know, standing up for Elizabeth or saying, hey, that's my sister you're talking about? There's no sign of it at all. We have nothing. We um zero comment by Edward and I think partly Edward VI is also he's also been pulled into Thomas's intrigues um you know Thomas is by far his favorite uncle and I think he's also quite involved with Thomas so I think actually uh, really he's trying to kind of protect his own position to some extent and uh, okay he's the he's the king um you know he's he's going to be fine but Certainly, I I get a sense that he's more involved with Thomas than he necessarily lets on when Mm. it all comes out in 1549. Okay. All right. So how does Elizabeth, can you just tell us a little more about after she's left and then sadly, Catherine Parr dies in childbirth and she doesn't get to see her again, but then Thomas is single again. And so how does that sort of play out? through Thomas's desire to get closer and closer to power. So um, Kate Ashley actually announces Catherine Parr's death to Elizabeth saying, you know, the noblest man in England is unmarried again. Um, So she's clearly thinking, you know what, Elizabeth, you could marry Thomas. Um, Thomas is definitely thinking he could marry Elizabeth because, you know, by 1548, she is approaching 15, Mm -hmm. which is definitely marriageable for a princess. He's unmarried. He's an uncle of the king. And, and I mean, actually, um, if you kind of just ignore the history, he's actually a really good match for Elizabeth. He's quite a lot older than her. But, I mean, actually, her future is possibly a foreign marriage, um, right. although her illegitimacy is is 
probably going to be a problem for that. Um, otherwise, remain unmarried like Mary. But we know Elizabeth likes men. Um, obviously, she doesn't act upon it later, but she's definitely quite attracted to men. So mm -hmm. I think she probably sees her future as marrying a nobleman in this period. And Thomas is definitely the biggest catch in England. Kate is pushing her towards Thomas. Thomas is definitely making a play for Elizabeth and he really entertains her servants. So Thomas Parry, her cofferer, who's a really important servant to Elizabeth, goes often to visit Thomas in London and they're clearly talking about marriage and they talk about exchanging Elizabeth's land so that they neighbour Thomas's, for example, mm. just to make it easier, a landholding. And Kate actually says to Thomas, you know, once they, do, you, do you think he's going about, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, do you, do you think he's asking about marriage? And Thomas Parry is like, well, I can't really tell, but um, it looks very much like he's trying to marry Elizabeth. And I suspect Elizabeth would have would have consented um, because he's a good match. She's obviously mm -hmm. attracted to him. Mm -hmm. Those closest to her approve of the match. So, I mean, Kate Ashley is like a mother to her. Kate, right. Kate's often unwise. But she does really care about Elizabeth. Right, um, right. You know, she stays with Elizabeth for the rest of her life. Yep. Um, it's clear that she sees Elizabeth as a, as a daughter figure. Um, she does act with Elizabeth's best interests at heart. She often gets it wrong, <laughs> but she does. She clearly cares about her. So right. I think Elizabeth would have married Thomas. Um, whether she would have done it without the council's consent, which is treasonous, I'm not right. sure. And she certainly always declares that she wouldn't do it without the council's consent. Although, I mean, Thomas's fall comes about when he attempts to kidnap the king. Um, I suspect if he'd arrived at Hatfield, where Elizabeth is staying, with the king in tow, she might well have gone with him and become his wife. Um, but, of okay. course, it doesn't play out like that. Right. Well, and I wonder, too, if she might have, th that would have allowed her to stay in England and stay with Cat Ashley, who may not have been able to go to a foreign court and a foreign country if she married out of the country. So the the Seymour marriage probably did have some appeal to Elizabeth as well. Yeah, and certainly to Kate Ashley, um, undoubtedly. Right. Because she, as you say, she gets to keep Elizabeth if, mm -hmm. if that happens. All right. So then Thomas is arrested and everything sort of falls into chaos. And Elizabeth is interrogated um, very seriously by someone who thinks he's an adult man and he can easily break her, but he isn't able to. So how does Elizabeth at that age manage to keep her cool and sort of thwart this investigation that seems to be trying to pull her in? and almost get rid of her. I mean, this is where I wonder, what's Edward thinking about all this? Because it seems like at this point, if she had been drawn into this, it could have ended very badly for her. Yeah. I mean, this is the moment where we first see Elizabeth I, if you like, you know, the woman right. that she'll become. This is really where we think, oh, yeah, there is more to her, I would say, because she's amazing. Um, so Robert Tirrett, arrives to interrogate her, arrests her servants. Um, Kate Ashley is actually sent to the Tower of London. Um, mm -hmm. Parry, Thomas Parry is arrested. And Elizabeth not only keeps her cool, but she is also incredibly imperious and incredibly indignant. And, um, you know, her the way she plays it is just she's indignant that they're even, you know, they even think this of her. It's just outrageous. She would never do anything disloyal. Um, and how dare they think it? Um, it's it's a masterclass in getting the upper hand, and she runs rings around Tyrrett. And also, I mean, she writes to protect her Somerset, and again is saying, you know, this is just 
outrageous. Bring me to London. I will show the people that mm-hmm. I'm not pregnant, that, you know, ev- everything's fine. And, I mean, she's clearly colluded with Kate Ashley and Thomas Parry on what they're prepared to admit um, because right. their their evidence is so ridiculously similar on almost all points. They've clearly decided what, what they can say. And it's almost like a mantra. They always mm-hmm. say, never without the council's consent for everything. It's like, did you talk about a marriage? Never without the council's <laughs> consent. You know, and it, they've obviously, they know that this will protect them because it's not treason if you're going to ask the council. Okay. Um, so Edwards Regency Council. Um, and, but the fact that they will admit what is really quite embarrassing for Elizabeth mm-hmm. suggests that there may well be more to it that we're not getting. They keep on close to their chests. Um, but clearly they've colluded. Um, but they stick to their stories, all three of them. And I mean, it saves all three of them. Right. And I just I just think about her at that age, you know, taking this imperious tone and just having the guts to write to Somerset, who is in this incredibly, you know, protected at that moment. He doesn't last, but um, his position is very secure at that moment. And yet she's sort of telling him what she will and won't do. And it's just a side of her. I I really find fascinating um, when she's in danger that she just suddenly turns into a little lioness's cub or something. She's brilliant. I mean, she's brilliant in it. Um, Mm -hmm. impressively so because i mean most teenagers i suspect would go to pieces <laughs> right they were investigated by well and her her two people yeah. have been taken away she's really there on her own without cat ashley and catherine parr's gone and yeah so all right so of course it it does not end well for thomas seymour she may and probably didn't say um there died a man of much wit and <laughs> I wish she did. I wish she did that. That that would be great. That's such a, that's such a great, whoever did come up with it. That's such a great quotation. Um, One of the things that's so interesting, just this whole political bits about marriage and, and his politicking with marriage and all of that. One of the things you say in your book is that you think he was the closest to becoming her husband. And so I think a lot of people who don't know this story very well might think that would have been either Robert Dudley later in life, or maybe even the Duke of Alençon, who became the Duke of Anjou much later. That seemed like the foreign marriage. I mean, that courtship went on and he came to England and that seemed like the most likely of the foreign suitors. So why do you think the real almost husband or the closest to being husband was Thomas Seymour rather than those two later, maybe more well-known suitors. Yeah. I mean, she undoubtedly flirts with marriage with Robert Dudley. Um, I think the murky circumstances of the death of his wife um, make it clear that she can never marry him. Um, you know, I mean, look what happens to Mary Queen of Scots um, uh, when she marries the man believed to have murdered her husband. Um, because, of course, Dudley's wife is found dead at the foot of a flight mm-hmm. of stairs. Um he doesn't seem to have murdered her, but it looks quite a lot like looks he did. Bad. <laughs> it does look bad, doesn't it? It does look bad. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, that's a difficult sell. Um, so I think, I mean, he has her heart, undoubtedly. Robert Dudley has her heart throughout her queenship. Um, but I don't think they could ever marry. And actually, I mean, again, we see, I mean, she has the Tom Seymour, Catherine Parr example to fall back on that actually. And a 
lovely suitor might turn into quite a domineering husband once they've got you safely married. Um, Anjou, she, I mean, she becomes engaged to him. Um, I mean, he's ostensibly her fiance. I suspect she's never totally serious. I mean, she's probably past childbearing by the mm-hmm. time she mm-hmm. properly is serious about Anjou. Um, it's reached the point where it, it's probably not worth getting married for. I mean, actually, William Cecil, um, one of his concerns about the Anjou marriage is that if Anjou inherits the French throne, he might murder the queen if she can't have children. Um, and she's unlikely to have children by the right. stage of that. You know, she's approaching 50. Thomas Seymour, on the other hand, um, you know, we're back, obviously, we're in this period before Elizabeth really has hopes of the throne. So, you know, she's looking probably at either spinsterhood or Mm -hmm. um, marriage. And actually, he's very, very charming. And she does seem to be negotiating. So I do think that had it played out better for him, if he if he had succeeded in his manoeuvres against his brother, or perhaps hadn't done them and had just, you know, been content with being a very wealthy and influential nobleman. Mm-hmm. I think he's a really likely husband. She is undoubtedly attracted to him. Um, I mean, Kate Ashley's husband, for example, says, you know, he's concerned at how interested Elizabeth seems to be in Thomas Seymour. Um, and he is the noblest man unmarried in England, as, as Kate said. Right. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, he is a really strong contender. And I think had he lived longer, had he not been so, um, I mean, ridiculous, really, with his plotting, I mean, it wasn't terribly well thought out, (laughs) Um, in in all honesty. um, I think he is likely to have been Elizabeth's husband. Um, She certainly always thinks fondly of him. I mean, her sympathies lie with Thomas. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, actually, people really like Thomas. Um, and I, I mean, I quite like him researching him. And I know he's he's a bit of a bad guy, but he is very charming. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, there is um, his old servants. He's he's the Lord High Admiral. His old servants, years after he died, have um, dined together to remember him. They call themselves the Old Admiralty. They sort of form a <laughs> club um, to remember him by. Um, well, that is it, nice. It is. So he's, he's fondly remembered. And actually, Elizabeth is given a portrait of Thomas with some verses sort of, sort of inscribed to his praise and she hangs it in Somerset House which oh. was of course built by Protector Somerset and I think that speaks volumes mm-hmm. about where her sympathies continue to lie so I'm, no, I think he's a really likely husband for Elizabeth I think we're at this only stage in her life where she was definitely looking towards marriage um, and I think Thomas is is the one that she was looking towards Okay. That's great. That's an interesting. So I want to pick up on your, what you said about this is the time in her life that she was looking for marriage. Later, she probably isn't because of the way Amy Dudley died or because of all of the political things going on and the problems inherent. If you marry someone who becomes the King of France and then spends all his time in France and drags England into French wars that's really no better better than, you know, Mary and Philip dragging England into Spain's wars. So there were a lot of reasons for her not to marry. So she becomes the virgin queen. But how important were these early experiences? So in addition to the political expediency of becoming the virgin queen, on a personal level, how important were these early experiences specifically with Thomas Seymour and just what she saw around her in her early years in becoming the Virgin Queen. 
So, it, I mean, it's always traditionally said of Elizabeth that, you know, she looked around and there were no positive examples of marriage in her family. And, I mean, it's it's true. Um, you know, I mean, her mother is is killed by her husband. Um, he then goes and kills another wife, divorces another wife. Um, mm-hmm. Mary and Philip is, is an absolute disaster. Um, you know, Mary is abandoned by Philip um, mm-hmm. and, as you say, dragged into Spain's wars. And, but I think actually the most immediate, the the marriage that Elizabeth is most involved in is the Catherine Parr Thomas Seymour marriage. Um, she's there right on the ground. She sees what's going on and she sees an independent, a clever independent queen subjugated by her husband. And because she is, I mean, you know, she is, she becomes second to Thomas when she marries him. And Elizabeth, of course, sees this and she sees some of the unhappiness that the marriage brings. And Catherine does seem to have been fond of Thomas and remain fond of him throughout, although she's clearly quite upset with him on her deathbed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is the marriage where it, it's really shown to Elizabeth firsthand that actually she lives in a patriarchal society mm-hmm. and marriage isn't good for an independent woman in the Tudor period. And, you know, she's the queen, but if she gets married... Her right. husband would be the king. I mean, Lord Darnley is King Henry of Scots when he marries Mary, Queen of Scots. Right. Um, you know, you you expect the husband of a queen to become the king. And right. a reigning queen still retains power, but it's shared. And Elizabeth is not good at sharing power. Um, right. Rightly, I would say. Yeah, no, I think that's that's very true. And um and and that is true. She really was right in the midst of that marriage and saw some of the personal stuff going on. And then I think of when she was observing Mary, Queen of Scots and Darnley and Mary, Queen of England and Philip. And even though that was very carefully structured so that Philip would not inherit England on Mary's death and, you know, her sister still did pretty much what Philip said and England got dragged into those wars. So um, I, I that's really interesting. So there's this really fascinating through line that I think, you know, probably starts with her parents' marriage and what that does to her in terms of the illegitimacy. And she's sort of stacked with that the rest of her life and throughout her reign, even though she was not expected to become queen, she does, but she's sort of challenged for that illegitimacy throughout. So that's fascinating. I love that. I love that. So, um, if you were to sort of give people a couple of takeaways, so we started by talking about how this period of time isn't always really looked at carefully. Um, during Edward's reign, she's sort of coming of age and has all these experiences that seem almost like a made-for-TV movie, right? I mean, it's, they're just kind of <laughs> stunning. So what are some of the takeaways we have about Elizabeth in terms of how she manages this period of her life and how that prepares her because, you know, as soon as Edward dies, there's the Jane Grey and then the Mary reign. And so it's not going to get easier for her for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, I think the take, the main takeaway is it becomes really clear to Elizabeth that just by virtue of who she is, she is a political animal, if you like, you know, um, there will be predatory people around her. There may be people that she can't trust. Um, and I mean, Edward's reign is her apprenticeship. She goes from being 
relatively cosseted. I mean, obviously, Henry illegitimizes Henry VIII illegitimizes her and is generally a fairly rubbish father. Um, but you know, she's she's quite sort of you know, while Henry lives, she's quite safely kept. Right. Um, when he dies, she's just out on her own, and she has to learn very very quickly. You know, think about who you can trust. Think about what they want from you. Um, how are you going to survive this? And it, I mean, it's a bear pit. Um, it's just, you know, she has this period of 11 years where she's almost constantly in danger on some level. I mean, with Jane Grey, for example, um, Edward, who is Elizabeth's fond brother, mm-hmm. um, disinherits her. Mm-hmm. Um, she was not going to fare well during the reign of Queen Jane. Um, Mary, capturing Mary was the primary concern, but, you know, they're not going to want Elizabeth at large either. So again, you know, she is constantly in danger. And I think she learns quite quickly that there are very few people she can trust and that she can rely on. So I think that's a really important takeaway. I think if you're looking for the origins of Elizabeth the woman, Elizabeth the queen, you have to go back to Edward's reign because I think this is where she emerges and she she learns very, very quickly, I would say. That's great. And she really learns she can trust herself. She leans into a particular position or this is what we're going to do and carries it out at a time where she was up against some very powerful, you know, Somerset, she was up against very powerful people, very powerful men in a very patriarchal world and was not um, sort of broken down by it. So I like that idea of it being an apprenticeship for her and there are very few people she trusted after that, and that was pretty wise. So that's great. Well, thank you. My goodness, this has been so interesting. I've loved talking about this and hearing this story and, and just seeing how remarkable this period is in the creating of her, and yet so often overlooked, as you said. So thank you for giving us this great insight. Now, um, if if we could just play a little tiny game of let's pretend. So if we could wave a magic wand and you could meet with Elizabeth and ask her any question about any type, any part of her reign or anything, what would you ask her? Oh, that's a tricky one. I'd have a whole list. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, oh, that's really hard. Um I think, I think I'd come back to Thomas Seymour. I think I would ask, you know, I'd say, what didn't you tell the council about um, Catherine's household and what Thomas is up to? You know, give me the gossip, if you like, because there's clearly more to it. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, what isn't said is as important to the formation of her character and her political career, if you like, as, as what is said and what they admit to. So I think I'd want to know about that. But I mean, I, I would have a, absolute pages of questions for Elizabeth. <laughs> if I could. She's she's definitely one of the ones I would love to be able to talk to. Right? Yeah, she can come to any dinner party of mine. <laughs> okay, well we'll we'll see what we can do. Um, <laughs> so tell us what you are working on these days. So, um, yeah, so I've been quite busy. Um, I was obviously um, involved in the Belinza Scandalous Family, which um, is airing at the moment on PBS. Right. Uh, and and we're so excited in the US. I know my my DVR is already set. So, yes, definitely. Well, I hope you enjoy it. It was such a pleasure. I was one of the consultants on it and I'm also in all the episodes. So it, it was real. It was really fun to approach the Belinza family from a, a different angle. 
if you like. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so that's kind of um, doing a few more TV things. I've been a consultant on a feature film, which comes out next year. How exciting. Yeah. So that involves Catherine Parr as well, actually. So that was that was very exciting. Um, and I was sort of trying to get a new book off the ground. So hopefully I'll have more information on that sort of in a while. Oh, good. Oh, we'll be so excited. Well, keep us posted on that because we would love to have you back to talk about that and um, talk that up. That's wonderful. And in... <laughs> definitely. I love it. I love it. So definitely, um, where, how can we get it, it? Follow you in the meanwhile, where can we see what you're up to? So the best place to find me is Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, I always have to say hello. It's always lovely to chat. So I am at E Norton history. Uh, it's not Elizabeth Norton. In fact, the owner of Elizabeth Norton gets annoyed with me because people <laughs> tag her. I was late to the party. So I'm at E Norton history. Okay. Um, but it'd be a pleasure. Come and say hi. It'd be lovely. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes too, that it's E Norton history. Don't, yes. but don't be bothering <laughs> the other Elizabeth Norton. Well, um, thank you so much. This was a pure delight for me to talk to one of my favorite historians about one of my favorite queens. And we've also talked about my other favorite queen, Anne Boleyn. So um, Dr. Elizabeth Norton, thank you so much for your time and your your wonderful scholarship and your generosity in sharing with us again, The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor. And I will have that in the show notes as well. I'm holding it up. I know you can't see it, but it's right here with me. So thank you everyone for listening. And thank you again to Dr. Elizabeth Norton. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been such a pleasure. I've had a really fun time. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you for being part of season three of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I appreciate your joining us. Please consider subscribing, sharing with a friend, and leaving a rating. And we would love to welcome you to the Royals, Rebels, and Romantics patron family. I'm really looking forward to shaking up history with you.